0: What comes to mind when I say um, the Garden of Eden? Now, I'm I'm not talking about uh, the temptation, you know, by that nasty serpent or the fall into sin. I'm talking about the garden before the fall. What comes to mind? We know from Scripture that it includes at least the following. First, God himself planted the garden um, in the east in Eden in which Adam would live. Uh, by the way, God created Adam from the dust of the ground. I want you to notice that phrase, from the dust of the ground, and breathed into him the breath of life. You see, there's a song that I kind of like uh, by uh, Arcadian Wild. We actually, They were actually with us with uh, Andrew Peterson a, a year and a half ago. And by the way, just by way of announcement, we're going to have Andrew Peterson again this Christmas. Yeah, that's exciting. Just uh, December 15th. Is that right, Clayton? Yep, uh, so you, you can put that on your calendar. Uh, but he had with him. he always has a kind of young, new talent, and he had Arcadian Wild with them, and they sang one of these uh, songs, um, Spring, uh, Wake, the lyrics go like this, and this is um, speaking of the creation of man uh, through the garden, through the fall, and God is speaking in the very first, the four songs. the very first song goes like this, Wake up, sleepy head! I pulled you out from the flower bed. Come on, that's good. From the dust of the ground, get it? Okay. Um, I, I, my breath fills your lungs. I, I'll give this garden to my favorite son. You are prince of all you see. I'd like for us to care for it. I'd like us to care for it together. You just look so much like me. My affections for you have no measure. Anybody need to hear that today? Is affection for you has no measure. You are clothed in brilliance, naked as you came. Because you bear my likeness, Bless, blessed be your name. Walk with me, my child. We'll give names to all creatures wild. I'll strengthen your hands. Bless and be blessed by this land that, in the garden. Of all God's creation, man and later woman alone bore the image, bear the image of God. Now, I, now Adam was to be a husbandman, a gardener, Um, and care for or tend the garden. The second thing that we see is that God had caused every tree that is pleasing to the eye and good for food to grow there and to be freely eaten. He also planted two significant trees there. One permitted the tree of life. One prohibited the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Third, a river flowed out of Eden To water the garden, and it divided into four rivers, the Pishon, the Gihon, the uh, Tigris, and the Euphrates. From those last two, it is surmised that the garden was somewhere in the Middle East. Maybe many attempts to find the garden have proven fruitless. Pun intended. Come on, that was good. You guys need to wake up. Fourth, God brought all the animals before Adam to be named by him and perhaps find a helper for him. Of course, God was not ignorant. He knew there would not be a suitable helper found. He was simply proving that to Adam. You, he, you need one, he's saying, perfectly created and suited for you. And so fifth, God put Adam to sleep, took a rib from the man, and created Eve. She was to be the mother of all living. God brought her to Adam, who broke into poetry. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. The scripture then adds... By the way, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I won't comment on this much further other than to say God's intention from the beginning was, say this gently, two genders tied to biological creation, now tied to biological birth, and he intended for a man and a woman to come together in marriage as husband and wife. Man and woman. marriage is God's plan, you see. man and woman for life, from the very beginning. Now, I know there is lots of confusion about that today, even in the so-called church. I might address it. I'm thinking about it biblically, sometime soon. Kind of depends on how much trouble I want to get in. <laughs> Sixth: y- Yes, I know. you want me to say it? Men. They were both naked and not ashamed, So there you go. So God placed. It is Father's Day. So um, God placed them together in the garden. By the way, here's my Father's Day, tipping my hat to Father's Day today. How long was Adam alone in the garden without Eve? Weeks, you know, months, years. How long can you make it without your wife? About a day. (laughs) If you hold the six literal days of creation, as I do We find God created man and woman both on the sixth day. (laughs) Think about that. Meaning, it took Adam less than one day to find out he was alone, incomplete, that he needed a helper, a companion suitable to complete him. Now, sometimes women are irritable to find that they were created for man. It seems so demeaning. Can I simply suggest what is more humbling to be the completer or to be the one incomplete without the other? Again, leave a man to himself for one day, and he can usually make a mess of things. Really, Scott, this is Father's Day? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know, it's, but it's the truth. They have completed us and made us fathers. So there you have it, a perfect environment, a perfect well-watered garden, with abundant food supply a perfect couple couple together in paradise what could be better in fact the well-known book by John Milton describes this fall into sin in his work entitled paradise lost you see the word eden means delight it was the garden of delight paradise Lost because you know the story. Eve was tempted by Satan to eat the forbidden uh, tree, uh, the fruit of the forbidden tree. Satan accomplished that by questioning both the character and the command of God. Eve ate the fruit, gave to her husband, who was with her, who knowingly ate. God then cursed the serpent, the man and the woman, drove them from the garden, from paradise, where they had enjoyed communion with him. It's interesting It's rightly suggested, I think it's rightly suggested, that Adam and Eve ate from the prohibited tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but they did not eat from the permitted tree, that is the tree of life. They did not eat. Why do I say that? Well, when God drove them from the garden after providing animal skins, presumably after sacrifice, we read these interesting words. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Trinitarian statement, I think, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also, he might do this, he might take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out um, from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. The implication there is this. They had not yet eaten of the tree of life. So God, don't miss it. In an act of mercy, God prevented them from doing so to keep them from living forever in their sinful, fallen state. As much as we love this life, we would not want to live forever like this. And, and this is the way God fixed it and driving them from the garden. So does the Garden of Eden still exist? That's the question everybody wants to know. You can Google it. Are there still cherubim with flaming sword to guard the entrance? If so, I would not be, want to be on the team of archaeologists who find it. I personally think it no longer exists here. It's my opinion I will suggest that it has been built and now transported, if you will, to the new Jerusalem, which will one day descend when heaven and earth are united, when God will once again dwell with his people, when we will behold the fullness of his glory in unhindered fashion, in glorified, sinless bodies, able to view his glory without incurring immediate death. You see... We read about it in our text today, in our continuing study of, an an almost finished study of Revelation chapter 22, last chapter, verses 1 to 5, say this. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, uh, in the middle of its street, on on either side of the river was the tree of life. There, There it is. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, Genesis 3. and, And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp or nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. As you know, we have finally reached, the, arrived at the last two chapters of the book. Not just, not just the book of Revelation, but the last two chapters of the book. The end of time as we know it. We have reached the consummation. The eschaton, the eternal state, which God intended all along, when heaven will come down to earth and God will dwell with His people forever. Note, and we will see Him face to face. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's be dismissed. What can I say? A few things. We looked at chapter twenty-one over the last couple of weeks. The first eight verses, we saw the new heaven, the new earth, first heaven, and the first earth had passed away. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, came down from heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle or the dwelling of God is among men. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. That that is the plan. It's always been the plan that God would live with his people. God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will no longer be any death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, because God is making all things new. He who overcomes will inherit these things. Which brought us last week to the description of the New Jerusalem, <coughs> the rest of chapter um, 21. It was actually an indescribable description. But central to the description was the very glory of God. Yes, there's going to be a huge city with walls of crystal clear jasper, streets of gold. There will be 12 gates bearing the names of the tribes of Israel, 12 foundation stones with the names of the apostles. It will be built in a, a, like a cube, length, width, and height, all equal, just like the Holy of Holies, because the city itself will house God and the Lamb who are its temple. As a result, there will be no sun or moon because God and his glory will be the light and the lamb will be its lamp. And since all evil has been banished, the only inhabitants of this city within its perpetually open gates are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's glorious. Which brings us to the text this morning, a continuing description of this indescribable city. But, but, but what we see now are some significant connections, if you will, with the Garden of Eden. I mean, if you've heard it, it is true. There is a sense in which we return to the garden and experience it in its fullness. In fact, I would suggest that the garden similarities or elements in the New Jerusalem are infinitely better than even the first garden. Think about it. The Bible is bookended with a start in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delight, and it ends with an eternal finish in the Garden of God. He walked with them in the first garden. He will dwell with us in the final garden, in the celestial, eternal city. It will be unbelievable, indescribable. Look at it with me. Here's the simple outline, the river of life, the trees of life, the face of God and the glory of God. Verse 1, then he... Showed me. We assume he is the same angel, one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls, the, the the one who's been giving John a tour of the new heaven and the new earth. The angel showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming uh, from the throne of God and of the Lamb. There is so much in that first verse. We remember the Garden of Eden was well watered. Remember, it had a river that flowed from the garden, divided into four uh, rivers. But this river, notice, is flowing from the throne of God. Remember, I said, this garden is infinitely better, clearly, flowing from the throne of God. It's uh, flowing from the throne of God himself, carrying the water of life. Remember a couple of weeks ago in chapter 21, God spoke and said, it is done. I am the alpha, the omega, the beginning, the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. In other words, this is not just physically satisfying waters. All right? If you drank a glass of water yesterday, you probably need to drink one today. We know that. This is soul-satisfying water. Remember, Jesus looked at this a couple of weeks ago, said to the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again, have to drink again today. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give, that I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. A few chapters later, um, at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out, if anyone is thirsty, I'm saying this to you today, is any, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, soul thirsting yet quenching, satisfying water. That's what this river will flow with. Meaning the river coming from God's throne is the water of life, clear as crystal, bestowing life-giving water to those who drink it. Now, this would have been incredibly meaningful to people living in the deserts of the Middle East who couldn't turn on the tap and get clean water. It should be incredibly meaningful to us. God himself will give us living water to drink. Have you drunk of the water of life? Remember, I suggested last week that this description of the New Jerusalem has much in common with Ezekiel's temple in Ezekiel 40 to 48. Now, I've had the privilege of, of leading, a uh, distinct privilege of leading uh, a few trips to Israel in the last few years. One of the most meaningful sites that we visit is in Now, that's probably not on the top of, in the top 10 of your list of places to visit in Israel. Come on, in Nazareth, Capernaum, the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, Jerusalem, Golgotha, the Garden Tomb. Engedi? What is that? Where is that? Well, here it is. And now you really want to go, right? I mean, at least it has beautiful women. Engedi is south, in, in, in the wilderness, right right off the Western coast of the Dead Sea. You know the Dead Sea. The Jordan River flows into it. Nothing flows out, so it's dead. Lots of minerals, but not a lot of life. Not only the sea, but all around it. If you've been there, it's it's desolate. And Getty again is off the west coast of that uh, of the Dead Sea. There's a very small waterfall. I guess it could have blown it up, allowing right behind my wife's head there um, for some green life around it. Not much though. Really not much to see. It's lifeless. It's dead. It's re- remote if you could be standing and, and looking around. There's nothing there. Top 10 sight. Can I tell you I've been there three times and ours was the only bus there? Hmm. We read in Ezekiel 47 near the end of the description of Ezekiel's temple these words. Then he brought me back to the door of the house, this temple that he's been describing, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from the south of the altar. So it's kind of flowing southeast toward the Dead Sea. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gate by the way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went around, the man that was showing him, this is an angel too. When, when the man uh, went out, uh, toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, a little over a quarter of a mile. And he led me um, through the water, water reaching the ankles. That's impressive, ankle team water, hold on, again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins or the waist. Again he measured and it was a river that I could not ford for the water had risen enough, uh, had risen enough water to swim in a river that could not be forded. And he said to me, son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of this mighty river. Now, when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were many trees on one side and on the other. Huh. Then he said to me, these waters go toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. That is the desert, into the wilderness, the desolate. Then they go toward the sea. Well, if it's going southeast, it's the Dead Sea being made to flow into the sea and the waters of the sea become fresh. And it will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. Not much living there. It's desolate. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and the others become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. And it will come about that fishermen. Oh my goodness. I, I, I guess I was. There is going to be some fish, fishing. <laughs> I stand humbly corrected. I, however, will not be one of them. (laughs) Fishermen will stand beside it from Engedi, that little bitty waterfall, to Enaglaim. There will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, like the Mediterranean Sea, very many, but its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. So if you still want to get your dead sea minerals to make your skin feel good, you could do that. Look at verse 12. By the river on its banks, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their waters flow from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Does that sound at all familiar? We just read it in Revelation 22. You see, there's coming a time in the New Jerusalem where God and the lamb are its temple and water will flow from their throne and make its way toward the Dead Sea. And and did you notice everything that the water of life touches comes to life. The sea will be teeming with fish, and on each side of the river will be trees that bear fruit year-round, and leaves will be for the healing, regardless, again, of your thoughts about the new heaven and the new earth being a recreation or renewal of the old heaven the old earth, whatever, the symbolism is clear. It is fulfilled here in Revelation 22. The water of life brings renewal and life to everything that it touches, and we're going to enjoy it. It's incredible. It's incredible. It's incredible. By the way, did you notice the river will flow from the throne singular of God and the Lamb? We've seen before that Jesus will share the throne with his Father. Revelation 3, Revelation 5. They share the throne. It's here again, speaking of the deity of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. It's unbelievable. It brings us to the trees of life in verse 2. This river will flow in the middle of the street. We, we saw that back in chapter 21 as being the street, of the main street, that's the actual word, the main street or the great seat of the city that is pure gold like transparent glass. So the river flows down the middle of the street. Uh, uh, okay, wait, that's, the street is clear like glass. And so from every direction, you can see this crystal clear river flowing. It's going to be amazing. Mind-blowing. They'll flow down the middle, and on either side of the river were trees of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. There are at least two trees because there are at least one on each side. Many suggest they exist all along the banks of the river. That's what I think it says. And they will bear their fruit, 12 kinds of fruit, 12 different kinds of fruit every month. A couple things about that. I've never... Heard of a tree that bears different fruit each month. These are going to be amazing trees with amazing fruit. To be clear, coconut and grapefruit will not be one of the 12. (laughs) 12 different kinds. Speaking of abundance, there will be lots of people in that city, and they will never run out of fruit from the trees of life. Yes, with no sun, it doesn't seem like that there will be months and years. The point is, the fruit, here's the point of the image. The fruit will always be available. And don't miss it, people will eat the fruit. Why is that important? Adam and Eve didn't. I've said this garden will be infinitely better. Unlike Adam and Eve, who were not permitted, once they failed to eat, we will eat this fruit leading to eternal life forever. Are these actual trees or simply images? Does not matter. They speak of abundance for all eternity. And it will be ours for the taking. Further, their leaves are for the healing of the nations. And you say, but wait, I thought there, wait, 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 I thought there won't be any sickness or death there. You're right. Because of the leaves on the trees. You're not feeling too well. Pick a leaf. We cannot get sick. We cannot die. That is the point of the image. By the way, did you notice there is the tree of life, but no tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not there. Remember, the garden is infinitely better. We won't want to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We did that once, and it didn't work out so well. We've experienced evil, and we will never want, and we will never experience it again. Leading to the third rather amazing point, verses 3 and 4, we will actually see the face of God. Just let that sink in a minute. There will no longer be any curse, Genesis 3. Curses removed because there is now no sin. And further, that sin kept us from seeing the face of God. No man can see God and live, you see. Notice John reminds us that God and the Lamb will be in the city. We're going to serve Him as believer priests. How do we serve Him? As if God needs anything, we simply, the word serve there, the true O, carries with us this idea of worship. We will worship him, Him, giving Him the glory that is due Him for all of eternity. That's how we'll serve Him as believer priests. But here's what I want you to notice. Verse 4, they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. We will see his face. I'm virtually speechless. The Old Testament says that God spoke with Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. But that is clearly not what we're talking about here. This was simply a way of saying that God spoke with Moses. Moses heard his voice because later Moses asked God, this is Exodus 33, I want to see you in all your glory, to which God replied, you can't. No man, verse 20, can see me and live. That's when God put Moses, remember, I'll do this. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, cover you with my hand, pass by, remove it so you can see the backside of my glory. That is likely the results of my glory passing by but you can't see my face, you'll die. I said it this way before. That's why Jesus had to wrap himself in human flesh because he didn't wrap his glory, the visible display of his attributes. If he didn't wrap himself, then the first two people to die would have been Joseph and Mary. John in his gospel, the same author who wrote Revelation says, no man, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, that's Jesus, by the way, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. He has revealed him. He has made him known. John later in his first letter writes, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Now, this is John writing. He had seen Jesus, not just as he is. He got a glimpse of that on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. All of these passages I just referenced, they speak of not seeing God, but the promise of seeing God, are fulfilled right now in Revelation chapter 22. We will see his face. The face of the invisible God. I don't know how that's what Paul calls him. We're gonna see him. It's the best thing about heaven. I, I've referenced this before many, many times. Piper, John Piper, in the book "God Is the Gospel." Ask the question: If, if you could go to heaven and enjoy all of its glories, streets of gold. Endless supply of food. See, all the people that have gone there before. No mourning, no sin, no death. Would you be satisfied if Christ were not there? We're going to see God. Best thing about heaven. It's going to be a transforming view. It's going to change us from glory to ever-increasing glory. Not that we become God, but we will see God. Further, his name will be written on our foreheads. Unlike the mark of the beast on the foreheads of his followers, the name of God will be on ours. It speaks of ownership. It speaks of likeness. It speaks of glory was promised to the overcomers in chapter three way many months ago. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, that is the new Jerusalem, and he will not go out from it anymore, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new, and I will also write on him my new name. This is an unbelievable, uh, did you just hear what I just said? You're gonna have the name of God imprinted on your foreheads. We're gonna all share it. Shana reminded us we're a family. We're all going to have the same family name because we all have the same father. It's unbelievable. Brings us to our fourth point, our conclusion. John simply but clearly reminds us that this is all about the glory of God. He reminds us there will no longer be any night and the inhabitants of the city will have no need of light, uh, of a lamp or the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them by his very unhindered glory. I mentioned to you last week, Ezekiel 40 to 48, which, by the way, Ezekiel 48, the book ends with this word. The name of the city will be called The Lord Is There. (laughs) The Lord is There. But I also mentioned Isaiah chapter sixty references this as well. We read in verse nineteen: No longer will you have the sun for the for light by day, nor the brightness, uh, nor for brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light, and your God for your glory. Unhindered, that's why it's a clear city, and they will reign forever and ever as God's vice regents. Don't say co regents. You're not co regents. You're vice regents under His sovereign goodness, in the light of His glory. I'm done. By the way, you remember that song I referenced by Arcadian Wilde at the beginning. It's actually in an album called Principium. It's actually four songs which traces creation through the fall. It's, 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 it's intriguing poetry. It's intriguing words. I, I recommend it to you. Spring, when, when, when man awakens, summer when he's walking with God, fall, when there's the war and he, and he falls, and then winter when all is dead. When all is dead. Because winter is called will. It's when we exercise our will as opposed to the will of God. Again, these songs trace creation through the fall and its consequences. But the last verse of that last song, winter, reads... Lay down, sleepy head. Rest your bones in that flower bed. I'll wake you when it's time. We'll walk in the warmth of an endless light. It is that for which we wait. When God unites the new heaven and the new earth, when he makes all things new, and we will walk with him in the light of his endless glory. Let's stand for prayer. How Revelation 21 and 22 make Revelation 6 to 19 worth it? We have unbelievable promises that if we will allow our minds to, to dwell on these things, it will overwhelm us. It will give us great hope. It will give us peace. It will give us, as we sing about it in the new song, courage to faithfully follow. Help us to do that. And when the going gets tough and it gets rough, help us to keep our minds and our eyes fixed on the finish line. Help our minds to be fixed on that which awaits death, physical death may await if Jesus doesn't come back, and we'll lie down and be awakened in physical resurrection to walk with you in eternal light. I don't, I don't know what all of that means. I just know that it will be glorious. And so help us to remain faithful to the very end, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.